This is Chavruta, Jewish Texts and Their Influence on Our Lives, a podcast by the San Diego Jewish Academy. I'm Ali Viterbi. And I'm Rabbi Phil Grobart. And each month, we bring in a guest to teach us their favorite piece of Jewish text. Today's guest is Charlene Seidel. Charlene is Executive Vice President of the Leishtag Foundation, an independent fi- private foundation that honors the legacy of Lee and Tony Leishtag. Uh, she's um, worked in many leadership roles in the San Diego Jewish community and the international Jewish community. She's a frequent speaker and presenter and writer about topics pertaining to philanthropy, Jewish community, friends, and social change. And uh, Charlene and I have known each other almost as long as she's been involved in the Jewish community, something like 18 years. Uh, and it's wonderful to have you as, a, as our guest. It's so good to be here with two people that, yeah, I feel like I do have special connections with you both. I've known you for both for a long time, Ali, for, for a while more through your parents and then kind of hearing about your good work through different connections. Mm-hmm. And so it's really an honor and I'm really, really happy to be here. Oh, well, thank you so much. So I wanted to start, if you could just tell us a little bit about um, your work. It, it's, it's hard to ask that question since um, the organization you work for is so multifaceted and doing so many really interesting things. And also you yourself have worked in um, different areas of the Jewish community uh, for a while doing all sorts of just interesting and creative things. So just to, to pick one thing that you're doing, that's kind of hard. I, I guess that um, maybe we'd like to hear a little bit about the hive just in, and what the thoughts that went into that. And um uh, Coastal Roots Farm, I think that we're, we're interested in that too, and uh, or anything you think that you'd like to tell us about your work right now. Uh, sure. So I work, as you mentioned, for the Leash Tag Foundation, which is a private independent foundation. We were founded by Lee and Tony Leash Tag, who are who are no longer here. They they died um, in 2008 and 2010, but they left their entire um, estate to this foundation. They they really, they grew up really in, in dire poverty and they, and they made it, they um, hit it big. They were entrepreneurs. They lacked a lot of formal education and they had a lot of failures as entrepreneurs before they finally hit it big. And I think, and I'll get back to the, the failures and the sort of spirit of entrepreneurship, but I think that they never really felt like their resources were theirs. They always sort of felt like, um, it was held in trust by them, but for the community and especially because they knew what it was like to need. Um, and so we're kind of their, their agents on earth in a way, like stewarding their legacy, trying to honor these people that really perform this magnificent act of generosity and kindness. Um, and so it's a pretty humbling and sacred duty that we all take very seriously. I think um, inspired by their their background as entrepreneurs. Um, and they were really mentors, especially Lee. He loved to mentor young up and coming, you know, business people. We know some people that he mentored. And so we look at ourselves in very much that spirit at the foundation. We're a talent agency. We are here to support big ideas, good ideas, um, those who are willing to take risks in order to make transformational change. And really, the Hive is very much a platform for that. So the Hive is a co-working space that's located here in at our 67-acre agricultural property called Leash Tag Commons that I hope all your listeners will come visit sometime when it's not a pandemic or masked when it is. Um, uh, and 
it is where now about 40 organizations sit in some, they, they, they use the workspace there. But more than that, it's a forum for professional development, for all kinds of arts and culture, big ideas. Um, not different organizations use it for gatherings, for thought leadership panels. We've had national convenings there. So it is very much the manifestation of that idea of support talent, give them resources, maybe give them some professional guidance or and um, get them together, allow those creative collisions to take place and then get out of the way so that they can make a difference and take risks. The farm is very much um, in that spirit as well. The farm, Coastal Roots Farm is a, is a separate nonprofit organization that Leishtag created and, and was the, the sole supporter of in the very early years in 2014. And now I'm really proud to say that um, there's a fabulous consortium of funders, government, many, many, stakeholders and people that have gone together to be sure that the farm is viable and they are you know composting talent they're composting and growing our community very literally from the ground up um and they're kind of uh, uh at the nexus of how people want to live here we care about our health we care about our neighbors health we have this beautiful outdoor weather and we want to be sure that our neighbors in need have access to the same quality fresh healthy food that we can all um, access as well and so that's very much what the farm is about I'm curious Charlene you've had such a long and um, really accomplished career in Jewish philanthropy what inspired you to get involved in Jewish work specifically in Jewish philanthropy mm. well I kind of fell into Jewish philanthropy I didn't know that that was a career that you could have um, I grew up in a family that was certainly community minded but you know didn't have a lot of extra resources and uh, but very much grew up with a strong Jewish identity. My, I mean, I'm kind of an accident of birth as I guess many of us are. My, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors or they escaped right before um, in the late thirties uh, to Southern Africa separately. All of them made their way to that part of the world. And all of them came from big families um, that they are you know, the sole survivors of. And so I always felt this very much this imperative to carry on a, a a tradition and 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 I grew up Orthodox actually I'm I'm not Orthodox anymore but uh, I really feel like I've been given the opportunity through going to Jewish day school to make educated choices about being Jewish um, I'm also um, you know a real strong connection to to Israel and and a lot of our work we didn't talk about it but is in Jerusalem in terms of supporting that same kind of talent and I can talk about that if you want but. Uh, I think all that came together and I was headed to law school to become, you know, a criminal defense attorney, that was my <laughs> dream. And then I kind of stumbled upon this internship at the Jewish Community Foundation. And I thought, wow, like I can work with amazing people. We have such an incredibly generous community in San Diego who really want to make a difference and I can support them and I can find community and family in doing that. And I can, um, I can find organizations that are really also doing good work and become a matchmaker of sorts between uh, the funders and the organizations. And I just fell in love really with the people and um, wanted, didn't want to get out of those relationships. And so I never made it to law school. Uh, and I guess I'm now in this world called Jewish philanthropy. But again, I really think a lot about, you know, it's not really about me. It's really about the the people that are the end users of the world that we're trying to 
envision and change. And I mean, I don't have children, but the people that are going to both inherit the this planet and this earth and that the people that have come before us. So it's sort of that dance. I feel like Jewish philanthropy, this gift I've been given in my career is a dance between honoring the people that come before us and making sure that that the next generation have all the choices and more that 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 I did. Right. Um, so you have a text to teach us? I do have a text, yes. Yeah. So I was thinking a lot about, actually, this was a great um, opportunity because I think like for many of us, the last year has definitely, definitely for me, prompted me to think more existentially um, than I'm accustomed to. And it's definitely been a period that's exposed the, the real fragility of our lives and how things can change in an instant. So I think that was right. sort of in my mind when I was thinking about what text to, to choose. Um, and the text that I chose, I'll kind of get back to it. I want to just, you know, but it's the one of my favorite Jewish teachings, and it's from the Hasidic master, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, which, which I remember it being translated when I was thinking about this as follows, which is that the whole world is a narrow bridge. The most important thing is not to fear at all. That was the whole world is a narrow bridge. The most important thing is not to fear at all. And you may know that Kati Hebrew tune, Kol Haulam Kulo Gesher Tsar Ma'od. So- We're familiar with Yeah, that. a lot of Jewish summer camp experience here. Very so. catchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I kind of want to go back to the text after just also giving you a little bit more background about what was sort of playing in my head as I was thinking about the text, which was, even before COVID, for a very specific reason that I'll also share, I was thinking about the balance between fear, caution, and risk, um, which I think a lot of our daily life comes down to making like the right calculations for. You know, I often think that and speak about philanthropy really being the risk capital of social change, especially like an independent foundation like ours. We have to be at the real front end of innovation, trying things that government can't or won't. Like I said before, supporting talent that maybe isn't used to, isn't most prominent on the scene, failing a lot, but but also we're the stewards of a precious community resource. So decisions that we make really change lives. So that calculation of fear, caution and risk is, um, is really something that I, I take seriously. And, and I, I think we need to be responsible and think about consequences, even as we take risks. So I, I consulted this text, this Kol Haulam Kulo Gesher Tsarmo, this the whole world is a narrow bridge. The most important thing is not to fear at all. When I was thinking about an opportunity that we were presented um, about a year and a bit ago, which I'll share also, um, which is that, um, as I mentioned, we we own this 68-acre agricultural property called Leashtad Commons. And about a year and a half ago, we were asked to consider partnering with Jewish Family Service with JFS, um, which was one of the foundation's most trusted grantees to accommodate this modest 25-car safe parking lot for people who live in their vehicles um, because they can't, because they've been uh, for whatever reason, they can't afford to um, be in be in permanent or more traditional housing, and it, it kind of became the most famous parking lot. We used to sort of jokingly, ironically, call it because it got a lot of press attention 
this small wonderful program parking lot on our site so so i i would say that i consulted this about a year and a half ago this text because my first instinct was to really declare a bold yes to the opportunity but i will admit that the first reaction that i had was really one of caution as i was thinking of the fear caution and risk primarily because you know we're a jewish organization and i'm responsible for security overall and the safety of people that work here were already targeted by a lot of hate and there was some negativity towards this idea in the community and so I really feared bringing that even more of that to the leash tag name and so somehow I thought about fear and, and how it was portrayed in our text and I remembered this the whole world is a narrow bridge the most important thing is not to fear at all and I decided to go back to the actual text itself the translation of its text and I and I discovered like a really important distinction that I wanted to share with you and if you want you know to discuss a little bit today which is that the actual text as I reread the translation and also some of the accompanying writings was that it actually says the most important thing is not to frighten yourself at all I had remembered mm. it wrong it's not the or maybe I'd look at another translation but it's not the most important thing is not to fear at all. It's the most important thing is not to frighten yourself at all. And that like really mm. blew my mind. And so I wanted to share that text with you today because to me, it suddenly transformed this text into something that's quite passive, but like even unrealistic, not to fear at all mm. into something where where we have an active role where I felt like, oh, I have a really active role. I have a choice. It's like, it was a way to really regain some kind of control. Um, and, you know, in this world that like has only since then become much more dangerous because of pan seeming at least more dangerous because of the pandemic and God's natural disaster and economic upheaval. The fact that like it said not to frighten yourself, it just, it made me, feel better about the care and caution, but also understanding that when confronting risk, like careful due diligence is really important, but we can never really get across that bridge if we surrender to fears that could be of our own making. So fear becomes kind of that, that choice, um, going back to the mm -hmm. text of not to frighten yourself at all. Yeah. Well, wow, so it's really interesting to think about that. I, it's, I, as you were talking, I was thinking that if you remember before the pandemic, it's hard to get our minds past that, but before the pandemic, one of the biggest priorities, probably the biggest priority in the Jewish community, it was coming off of the shootings in Pittsburgh and mm -hmm. right. Poway. Mm -hmm. so, so, so many of my colleagues, rabbis, just were having to worry about synagogue security. It was, it was just suddenly so important and, and having to raise and work with the foundation, I'm sure leash tag and, and federation and just raising millions of dollars to, to secure campuses. And, um, and, and that was, it was just, you know, it was a huge priority and, and work got started on that. And then suddenly now there's a pandemic. So, you know, we forgot about, you know, the terrorists that maybe tunnel in or come in one way or another. So now we've got this tiny little bug. And I, I remember taking a walk shortly after the pandemic started, you know, and where, when it seemed dangerous to even take a walk, but you know, I was taking a walk. And, um, and I was thinking that um, it seems like the priority of the Jewish community for the next 10 years is going to be keeping things out, you know, it's keeping terrorists out, keeping bugs out, keeping sick people out. And, 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 and what a cost that we would have to pay in our souls for, for just suddenly the, having that be the top of the agenda, keeping ourselves safe, 
keeping things out, letting fear dominate the agenda. And um, so, so much, of what, so much of what you're saying resonates with me. It doesn't give us necessarily any answers, right? Because th those, are, those are important issues and, and we have to keep ourselves healthy and safe, but, but we have to do it with the sense that um, we're, we're, we have souls that want to reach out to people and, and, and bring people in and, and, and have it natural that people could come in and, and be part of what we're, what we're offering. I think so, it, so how do we do that? And stay safe I think it doesn't problem? give us answers, but for me, the answer is that it is like very clear that we need to actively choose against paralysis, right? Like fear really paralyzes us. And, but whether to frighten ourselves, that's an active choice that we make. And, um, and that to me, yeah, it doesn't give us answers, but it's, it's just very, it shows how to find the answers both within us. And I think among community, which again, getting back to why I'm involved in this, like, this is my community. It's so much more than a job. It is about, you know, caring for each other in the best ways and the most not fear-driven ways, but in a way that like, we don't frighten ourselves. That, that means that caution is really important. I mean, caution is, 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 necessary but but fear in and of itself i think can paralyze and that and i think like if we look mm -hmm. at i think that's such an interesting point that you bring up about pittsburgh and poway and you know how we even came to but we did come together after that right. and yeah. you know i remember reflecting with the ceo of the jewish federation of pittsburgh who I, who I know about you know he worked like 20 hour day and he was at the synagogue and and they made sure that they did a you know 30 day shloshim service at that place and whatever the choices are that you're making clearly we can't come together i think the last Last year of the pandemic and i mean i have friends that have been really sick i i know you know family members that have died i don't want to undermine or underestimate the suffering of this pandemic but also there have been a lot of beautiful ways where i think as a community we haven't let fear paralyze us and i think we have chosen not to frighten ourselves and i think like the the rest of that um i was thinking again as i was but the rest of that um uh, imperative from from Rabbi Nachman after he says that the whole world is a narrow bridge. The most important thing is not to frighten yourself. Is that he then tells his followers and all of us really that we should understand the power of encouraging ourselves and never yield to despair, no matter what happens. And I think that also, like as I was thinking about the last year, and as I think now about the last year, the suffering it's still present. We have the vaccines and we have the signs of hope, but. I also read a commentary that noted that Rabbi Nachman didn't compare the world to like a field, you know, on which we hmm. could rest, but it's to a bridge. I mean, a bridge, like that's a symbol of yeah, passage, right, a symbol right. of this too will pass. And this is a journey and we're going to, you know, we're going to get through it no matter what. We'll be cautious, but also not be afraid or not to choose to make ourselves afraid. We'll find this, we're, you know, this safe place and we'll navigate the narrow crossing, but we'll just keep, keep crossing. This is a season and not a lifetime. Right. Yeah. And that the, the whole world is that narrow bridge, right? Mm -hmm. So we get through the COVID crisis, we get through the threat to our synagogues and yet there's still the rest of the world is still that narrow bridge. I'm finding that really compelling right now. I'm curious, where, how do you know kind of where to draw that line between caution and fear? You know, I'm hearing what you're saying about fright. There's a difference between fear and frightening yourself, and I'm finding that really compelling. But when you're making decisions on an organizational level that affect so many members of the community, 
what exactly drives, you know, you don't want people to be so unafraid that they go and they, without their masks, right? Because there's this sense of civic duty and responsibility. I'm wondering how kind of from your perspective as someone that's in charge of this, where do you draw that line? Yeah, you know, I think every calculus is different, right? But I will share with you a few of the ways with, you know, when, for that I use when analyzing the safe parking program, because I had, I had mentioned that as sort of an example of, I was sort of paralyzed. So first, like, I just learned more about the program. Like I actually looked at the data, at the results, not the hype, not the fears. You know, I kind of just looked at the program, which was already operating at a couple sites and just understanding a little bit more about it, that the, the model, the vetting, the different physical, that, that was helpful, certainly in overcoming some of my security concerns. And then I talked to people that I respect, you know, experts, but not necessarily academic experts, like really frontline practitioners that had years and years of wisdom to draw from, or, you know, and people that I'd lived experience too, um, right. that had maybe lived in their cars. And there's more of them that I, than I expected that sort of came out, like that I would have never thought that. I mean, had lived in their cars at certain points. And, you know, I looked at, um, um, I th- and, I, and I also really tried to listen to the community feedback and I tried to see through their fear. There was definitely, there's definitely some hate and, and I mean, anti-Semitism came out and all that, but definitely trying to listen with some openness and empathy and then make, you know, and I don't wanna, this didn't take you know, it, it couldn't, we can't take two years to do this. So, I mean, right. it was within the space of, you know, a week or two doing that. And sometimes you just have moments to do that. But I think like every calculus is different, but some combination of intuition, unpacking, like, well, what is fearing me? What's the worst that can happen? What's the best thing that can happen? What are the consequences that I kind of can think of? And what could be some of the unintended consequence? I try to like, um, in our team, like try to surround myself in part with people that that play different roles, at least for me as advisors, or maybe as my team of advisors, not necessarily my staff team. And like, somebody that really like disagrees with me, like I really that I but I that I could respect about like most things I, you know, I can think of a couple people that I turn to constantly to just here and like argue the other side and, and you know and I think like that combination of the diversity of counsel really being sure that we're looking at data and I guess like something I can't quite define which is gut in you know and then constantly just being sure okay am I in forward motion even if it's like one conversation at a time and it's snail's pace I never want to be I never want us to be paralyzed by our fear because the whole world really is that yeah. bridge that's right yeah, I like the image of the bridge that you brought up that just yeah. keeps us moving. There's a transition. We're going from here to there. I'll tell you, there was a, um, a kind of a mentor I had, a professor in rabbinical school, who said uh, something I didn't quite understand at the time. I think you have to maybe be a little older, but he said that you have to be mm-hmm. near the pain. If, if you want a meaningful life, you have to be near the pain. And uh, I guess what I, what I learned over the years is that to have strong communities, you have to allow yourself to experience the pain of your surrounding community. Otherwise it's not meaningful. And um, for another thing I'm working on, I I was looking at um, some of the history of B'nai Jeshurun in New York. Um, When I lived in New York, I actually was an intern at B'nai Jeshurun. Um, Yeah. 
through Rabbi Marshall Meyer uh, of blessed memory, uh, also a great mentor of mine. And um, a lot of people, when they think of B'nai Jeshurun, they think of mm -hmm. the music, you know, and, and a lot of people tried to model the music. But you, you probably know, B'nai Jeshurun became this important Jewish institution on the Upper West Side. I mean, it was dead. And, and then Marshall Meyer came and, and he transformed it by starting a homeless shelter. Um, and it was, it's a longer story. Ed Koch challenged the synagogues. All the churches have homeless shelters. No synagogues have homeless shelters. So, um, so B'nai Jeshurun started a homeless shelter. It, it brought in uh, just a whole bunch of volunteers and it created the community that then have everything that they have now and the music and, and, and everything that's wonderful. But it started sort of modestly by, okay, we'll do a homeless shelter. We'll bring in 10 homeless people, 20, 50, and we'll have a soup kitchen and we'll, 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 we'll experience the pain of our community. And, and that, built up, um, that built up that synagogue. And uh, that was kind of a lesson I've tried to bring with me in my career, but try telling it to <laughs> congregants, you know, where, or, or you're bored, you know, like we're, we're going to build up this community by um, letting a bunch of homeless people sleep in, you know, the sanctuary and the classrooms. And we're going to do that two weeks a year, three weeks a year. So, you know, when we did it at synagogues I've been a part of in Bethel, it, it really, it, it had that effect of just galvanizing the volunteer base and, you know, for the for a brief time, it, it brought in more people than like high holidays in the aggregate, the, the homeless shelter at, at Bethel. But um, but but yeah, we had to play to the risks. I mean, we and, um, and we had to um, understand that it, it, it's the risk in, in dealing with the fear that actually builds powerful communities. Absolutely. And I think that that also touches on, you know, we're, we, are, we are on this journey, we are on this bridge and we're constantly moving whether or not we know it or not. So keeping something at the status quo, I mean, the, the best argument for risk is that keeping right. something at the status quo, it's not, it's not really at the status quo, right? We're, we're making an active- It's a bigger risk. Choice, yeah. No matter what, because we are stepping on this journey, you know, we're on this bridge. And so we were maybe, you know, that can, but that's never, we're never static. Even if we think we are, goodness knows the pandemic has taught us that we are not, that we are in our fragile existence and we're not yeah. static. And so I think that that is, you know, a big argument for risk because things are changing even amongst us. And so we have to just change or at least adapt or at least be conscious of that around us, even if it's, even if we really don't think that it is, um, around, you know, that, that it is needed or that it would be um, even advisable at the time, because there is this, I mean, it sounds like a really ubiquitous, but like this rapid change that's happening, whether or not we know it. And I think that the, that, you know, through like, through kind of, I, I, I look at Rabbi Nachman here a little bit, like he's given us a bit of a gift or me a gift at least, like it's a way to choose against that paralysis. It's against the indecision or the despair. It's just like mm -hmm. a tool to kind of like live in the day in a way, like without danger, doing the best we can because we are trying, you know, to go to that proverbial other side. But at least we know that we've moved forward during our time on this place, right? Isn't that, to me, that's actually the essence of what being Jewish is all about. You mm -hmm. know, that there's another quote that I think about, about it's not your job to complete the task, but neither may you refrain from it from Pierre Kavo, right. which is another wealth of, of wisdom for me. But, uh, and that's so comforting too, right? In terms of like making decisions. It's like, 
the whole weight of the world doesn't have to just rest on me, but I need to always be doing something to make, to make things a little better for that kind of pain that you're describing. Um, and, and by doing so, we're not giving in to that despair. Uh, you know, I was, I was thinking just, um, it really is a good argument because we have to face fear and we also have to move forward. It's also a good argument for looking at the mission. So the, the, the mission of, a, of, of, of any organization, the mission of a Jewish organization, the synagogue is always going to be in some way or another to help people. And um, if you're shutting down because you need to keep people out, you need to keep things out, you have to have a sense of security. If you're shutting down your mission, then, um, then you've really damaged yourself. I mean, that, that, that's as much damage as a, um, as a pandemic can cause. As, as soon as you, it's, it's not even so much paralysis, it's just that, okay, everything now depends on, let's build the perimeter and build the fence. If everything depends on that, if all the resources depend on that, then, um, then you've ignored your mission. And the mission is what created the That's such an important point, you know, Ali, when you asked me earlier about, well, how do you, you know, make that calculation? That That is the first thing that I I don't think I mentioned it, but I, that is the first thing that, that we, that I do, that we do here, which is kind of, does it meet our mission? Does it move the mission forward? Like when you're doing it right. on behalf of an individual, you're asking, does it move my own personal journey forward right somehow but does it move the mission forward does it move the legacy forward does it you know and so again going back to safe parking i mean helping the most vulnerable if we said no to that goodness knows we wouldn't be honoring what the lease tags you know stood for and their lived experience we had to do it with risk but that was a very very important calculus yeah I think you just actually answered the next question I was going <laughs> to ask, which is, you know, advice for people that have trouble understanding, as Rav Nachman said, like understanding the power of encouraging ourselves. And, and sometimes the world is very scary and it's very easy to yield to despair. But I think what you just said is so inspiring to me because it's about looking back to your fundamental values right as an institution what is your mission statement but also for individuals like what what is driving you what are the things that are most important to you and turning to those when in those moments of despair i think a lot about you know the concept of the minyan and and the basic kind of building block of judaism being the the need to gather around people in order to fully express yourself to God. And that's something, you know, just in my work as a writer and an artist that really drives, that's what I think of as my mission statement. The fact that you need mm -hmm. community to move forward, to be able to share in joy and in grief. Right. And so I, I think that that's just such a useful reminder that the way to not yield to despair is to think about your core values and think about how every decision that you make is being, whether it is living up to what you really believe in. So that's not really a question, but I, but you answered my question. That's so well said. And I, it also like, I do think we should all, you know, whether we're an organization or an individual, you know, those values could change over time, but it's good right. to jot down, you know, your, and it would be interesting actually to see how they change over time, but, and if they do or not, but really understanding like true, I mean, there's a authenticity. That's maybe another podcast. Like we'll talk, you know, I think it's like overused a bit, but that's true. Authenticity is really understanding. Well, what do I stand for? And what do I personally want to move forward in the world? 
last night, actually, coincidentally, I I did an interview. I was on the other side. <laughs> it wasn't a podcast, but it was a <laughs> presentation. I, the New Americans Museum down at um, NTC, down in Point Loma, asked me to do to interview Rose Schindler, oh, you yeah. know, who is oh, a survivor yeah. of Auschwitz. And so we did wow. that last night on Zoom, and it was a really yeah. nice event. And and she was actually talking a little bit about this. She didn't she didn't talk about the quote, but it was darn close. Like she talked about what got her through Auschwitz, and she said that every single day she chose to hope instead of despair. Like mm. every single day, that was an active choice she made. And again, she didn't mention Rabbi Nachman's quote, but I think that's exactly what he's telling us. Like she refused to be paralyzed because that was the one thing that she still had control over. She might not you know, have control over her body, over what happened to her family, over what she would do that or eat or anything that day. And, and I asked her, you know, are you still, are you hopeful? Are you optimistic? Like, what do you think as you, are looking at this world forward, you know, and she said, you have to be optimistic. Like you can't, you fail the journey. And this is my paraphrasing, but you fail this if you're not optimistic, if you're not actively choosing to hope instead of despair, because otherwise you've, you've lost before you've even begun the game. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, something that (laughs) frustrates me, I think about this piece of text is it says the most important thing. And then it frames it in the negative is to not frighten Mm -hmm. yourself. Right. And so I'm like, okay, well, how do you do that? How do you actually frame that in the positive? What is the most important thing that you can actively do? And I think hope is a really lovely idea for that, right? I love the idea that hope is the opposite of not frightening yourself or is the is the same as not frightening yourself. So I, I'm going to think about that now when I, I encounter this quote. Because I like hope a lot, but hope sort of seems a little to me like pie in the sky. Like it's not, you know... It's not an active, like I can hope, hope. I don't know. I want to think about like, what is, is it fixed? Is it change? Is it like one, you know, act in one way? I, I don't iterate. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to think about it, the choice of that. Um, but yes, I agree. And it even gets worse in that text, right? Because then he says, you know, and you must never yield to despair, no matter what happens. <laughs> right. So that's another negative. Right. Um, which I guess framed in the positive could be to, you know, encourage ourselves and encourage others. I mean, that really does. And she said this last night, she reflected on this, but like even a little crust or something by, uh, you know, somebody else at Auschwitz, a fellow prisoner could, could drive her for days and days. Um, It's physically, of course, but also emotionally that sustenance. I'm thinking about this a lot, like on my walks in the morning, because, you know, I mean, I'm very like, I'm not, I'm kind of a solitary walker. I like to listen to podcasts and I, but you know, I, I feel like we've sort of in our mass and everything, I can't even make a little smile of people, you know, you can't even <laughs> right. reach out. So like, what, what do you do right. to show that community encouragement or that, you know, little, um, that, that we know is important to others when we are in mass and we're not really supposed to stop and chat. I've been giving a little wave. I don't know if it helps or makes me look crazy, but it, it feels good. <laughs> you know, last night, so we're, we're, um, mm-hmm. we're recording this important. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so I'll make a confession. I, I um, this is a, this is kind of a joke, but it's also you know like like a lot of jokes. It's got some reality in it. I was talking to a group of retired rabbis the other day, and um, 
I'm sort of retired too, because I'm not at a synagogue anymore. I'm just teaching part-time. But um, so we were all asking each other whether we were going to go on to, uh, to Purim, to just do Purim online, because it's only available online. And I said, you know, the reason I retired <laughs> is because of Purim. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I, I can say it now. I mean, I've never, I was never a huge fan of Purim, just Purim services. And it's just crazy and and there's this there's this also insistence on being funny <laughs> somehow i find like the pressure to be funny like one of the hardest pressures for a rabbi but um but i have so my answer was no i'm not i, I didn't like it in person i'm not going to go online now and, and try to find like a worm spiel <laughs> but i did um mostly my you know, my wife had it on at the dinner table so you know, we were watching uh yeah like we often do now several synagogues and um i have to say it was just incredibly inspiring it's one of the can 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 you really pull off Purim, where the gathering together, like Ali said, is so so important. <laughs> like the sweaty dancing, you know, kids running. I mean, how do you reproduce that? And um, and of course you can't. But um, but the places I went to, including Bethel, my, my former synagogue, very creative. A lot of hard work went into it. A, a lot of soul. And uh, but so there was one synagogue that I kind of tuned into for a while. That instead of Haman. The person uh, reading oh. said COVID. <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah, like, like, like COVID is sort of our Haman now. And, uh, and everybody was booing and, you know, just boo COVID. And um, so I was thinking one thing you can do to, um, you know, let's just say, it's not like you said before, Charlene, it's not defeating fear, but you're transcending fear. Mm-hmm. So humor can play a part in that too. I think that Jews have been good at that. I mean, that maybe is the whole point of, of Purim is that we make fun of Haman and, and we laugh. And uh, otherwise we would give into despair and fear because really the story is very scary. Um, but we decide it's not going to be scary. Really We're going to make it fun. Our essence, right? Like I got and admonished it, somewhere on social media about making a joke about that lightsaber comment that Marjorie. Oh, yeah. And I, and I, and I think it was maybe even anyway. And I, I mean, whatever, I'm not, I don't get into arguments on social media, but, I did think to myself, like, come on, you know, this is our survival mechanism if we can't laugh at it, because by laughing at it also, we, um, yeah. we, we, we get rid of our own fear. I mean, that is a way, right. it's a tool, it's a coping mechanism, it's a way to disrupt fear, to say, no, I'm not going to let, I'm controlling this now, you know, I'm controlling, whether or not we are or not, it is a very fundamental coping mechanism. Thinking about our, just what we were just talking about, make, making about a negative rather than a positive. I also read a very interesting article about porn last night that was making the argument, it was by um, Amichai Levy from another New York-based uh, shul, lab shul. And he feels that especially this year in this age of polarization, we shouldn't be booing Haman. We should be like cheering on Esther. Like it shouldn't be about a negative. It yes. should be about oh, right. supporting like strengths and positive, which I thought was so fascinating and really appealed to me. I'm named after yeah. Esther, so I approve oh. of that. Yeah. I mean, I... <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I see you're not wearing a costume today. Neither am I. <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe next sure. year. So I have one more question, uh, Charlene, and it's not related not related to the text. I was going to ask this before, but I am curious. Do, do you do you have mentors, role models? Is there one person I have in particular? Tons of mentors and role really models. Um, one of the amazing things about starting my career so young, I guess, and at the Jewish Community Foundation when I was nineteen, I started working there, is that I just like got to develop relationships with a lot of people who were very kind and 
I mean, I've had mentors that have made more of a difference, but I think the diversity of drawing upon, I, I don't have like a single image because I think that none of us are very singular, you know, and I, myself, most of all. And so, you know, some of my best mentors are actually the ones that I was talking about before who sort of just disagree with me about everything. But I do, I have a few people that I consult with, um, you know, on decisions or, and I feel like, and it's sort of like a personal board of directors. Like sometimes I advise like young people just starting out to have that own personal, like not to rely on a single mentor and and to have a, a like a small group of people that they can trust that are not like within the workspace. It should not be within your workplace. It should be totally separate from that, but that you really feel like you can trust and and that you are realistic about what they, can and can't provide so nobody can provide all the answers but will they ask my best mentors ask me questions you know questions that get me thinking um and that's been a real gift okay well we really appreciate the conversation yeah, so and inspiring the time, i'm so, so thank you very grateful much. for the text you chose and how beautifully you were able to articulate the role that it's played in your life i loved it and thank you both for inviting me and thank you um for giving me the opportunity to go back to this text. And there were lots of texts that actually came to mind. So that was fun. Um, but this one really resonated. So thank you so much for having me. Chavruta Jewish Texts and Their Influence on Our Lives is brought to you by the San Diego Jewish Academy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, where you can also rate, review us, and subscribe. Our music is composed by former podcast guest Gail Strome. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.